This is Scott H. Andrews of Beneath Ceaseless Skies, the Hugo and Parsec Award finalist, online magazine of literary adventure fantasy, and you're listening to Podcastle, an escape artist podcast. Podcastle, episode 425. For July 19th, 2016. Flash Fiction Extravaganza. Transformations. Rated PG-13. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle, where the castle staff consists entirely of shapeshifters, lycanthropes, and bears in human suits. But we won't tell you who's who. I'm your host, Jen Albert. Transformation, metamorphosis, a physical change of state. It's a theme pretty much as old as literature itself. And this week we have three flash fiction stories for you in this vein that offer some fresh perspectives. First up, we have Girl in Blue Dress, 1881 by Sunil Patel. This story was first published in Fantastic Stories of the Imagination. Sunil Patel is a Bay Area fiction writer and playwright who has written about everything from ghostly cows to talking beer. His plays have been performed at San Francisco Theatre Pub and San Francisco Olympians Festival, and his fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in Fireside Magazine, Flash Fiction Online, The Book Smugglers, Fantastic Stories of the Imagination, Asimov Science Fiction, and Lightspeed, among others. Plus, he reviews books and TV for Lightspeed, and he is assistant editor of Mothership Zeta. His favorite things to consume include nachos, milkshakes, and narrative. Find out more at ghostwritingcow.com, where you can watch his plays or follow him at ghostwritingcow on Twitter. His Twitter has been described as engaging, exclamatory, and crispy, crunchy, peanut buttery. Our first story today is narrated by someone you know well, Podcastle's own assistant editor, Khalida Muhammad Ali. Of his story, Sunil says... I was inspired to write this piece while visiting the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, thinking about all the generic titles in art and what that means for the subjects, especially women. I must note that Christina Rossetti got there first with her poems in an artist's studio, which bears a striking resemblance to my story. My girl in blue dress high-fives her nameless girl in freshest summer greens across time. Now try to hold on to your current form for just a little while so you can enjoy the stories. Girl in Blue Dress, 1881, by Sunil Patel. Her dress is composed of blues from ultramarine to cerulean, a cascade of hues resolving into one. She stands askew, her expression unreadable, her mouth a blur. The colors in her dress have not faded, but her name has. He asked for it once but he did not write it down. The nebulous background of azure and cobalt threatens to envelop her, and she can feel herself dissolving, her dress atomizing into its component colors and joining the larger canvas. For over a century, she has fought to keep hold of her blue dress. She has no body underneath. She floats and paints, far from the rigid rectangle of the frame that confines her entire world. She floats, and she waits for the night. 
He said he would immortalize her, that everyone would remember her, but only his name remains in the bottom right by her feet. To all others, she is simply a girl in a blue dress, a nameless female in colored clothing, indistinguishable from her neighbors on the gallery wall, woman in red blouse, and young girl in white apron. He said he would capture her beauty, yet he only captured an impression of her, her edges undefined, her body almost uncaged. He said that he would capture her beauty, yet he only captured an impression of her, her edges undefined, her body almost caged. Flecks of blue from the sky fall into her face. Is she beautiful like the sky? Is that the message he is trying to convey? What is he trying to say, they must think? What is she trying to say, they must not think, as she cannot say anything? That summer day he called to her, as she was walking through the field on her way home from the pâtisserie. In days past, she had seen him absorbed in his canvas, head darting up to take in the landscape. Had he noticed her? Pretty girl, he said, I'm an artist. Let me paint you. She assented, wiping the crumbs from her face. No one had ever asked to paint her before. She felt worthy of being transformed into oils but the artist did not mention the extent of the transformation. He spoke occasionally while painting, asking her to move her head to one side or the other to change the reflection of the sunlight. Some golden brushstrokes remained on her cheek. His hands flew wildly on the canvas, the brush attacking it like a mad bird. After the first hour, he stepped back and put a hand on his bearded chin. Then a return to the canvas, the brush swirling all around, the artist now with his eyes closed, humming softly. She felt herself fading, then saw her hand become translucent in the sunlight. The duplicitous wretch. Through her hand, she saw his mouth curl into a smile. She opened her mouth to malign him, but then she was gone. From her new position, she looked directly into his eyes as he admired his work. Her eyes could never close again. Now so many eyes are upon her each day, scrutinizing her every curve. Her body is fully covered, but she still feels exposed. She never said goodbye to her sister, her mother. Of the many things he took away from her, the loss of her family angers her most. Did they look for her? Did they follow her as she shuffled from patron to patron, collection to collection, captured, bought, collected, displayed, a butterfly caught? Every day she hears them speculate as they gaze at her. His sister, his daughter, his lover. Their words and eyes leave a patina as if preserving her paints in a layer of lies. They do not know her. They merely know her image. All that remains of her is her immortal beauty. She has no name, no history, no life. He retains his name, however. 
By her feet, he has marked the canvas with it, tagged and branded her world. Her mother, now lost to time, told her fairy tales to illustrate justice, and as a little girl she believed in it. As a young girl, she can have it. By day observed, she is still life, but by night, the enchantment loosens its hold on her. The museum is silent as the space between centuries, the incessant chatter quieted until morning. She wiggles her big toe, barefoot in the grass he asked for her, such lovely feet, he said. Now, with her lovely feet, she kicks at the letters with all her might, chipping the paint away. Letter by letter, she will erase him as he has erased her, reducing him to nothing more than man with paintbrush. Our second story on transformations is Mirabilis by Shannon Peavy. This story is a Podcastle original. Shannon Peavy is a writer and horse trainer from Seattle, Washington. Her work has appeared in places like Apex, Lightspeed, and Beneath Cecil's Skies, and has been nominated for the Shirley Jackson Award. She is also co-editor of the new fiction magazine, Liminal Stories. Find her online at shannonpeavy.com. Your narrator for this story is, well, me. Mirabilis by Shannon Peavy No one's really seen a girl turn to glass. It's one of those things journalists make up when they're bored, like the knockout game or the Russian heroine that rots your skin. They show these pictures of sick, pretty, starving girls on the evening news, girls with slatted ribs and fierce eyes, and my mama clicks her tongue and I change the channel. Meanwhile, Zola eats none of her peas. We hardly notice and certainly don't worry. After all, peas are gross. When the two of us sit on the couch watching reruns of my strange addiction, Zola's sharp little knees stabbing my hip bone, I almost say something. Nothing big, just... Oh, hey, those glass girls. Fucking weird, right? She stares at the guy on the TV eating fireplace ashes and says, It's loud. Mind turning it down? The volume's set to something like 12. But it's not like the narration's adding much. I turn the TV down low, and we sit there watching this man with his white powder face, his bulging stomach, how he licks ash off his fingertips. I clench my hands in my lap. Intent on the screen, Zola reaches up and taps gently on her front tooth with a fingernail. It makes a strange ceramic sound. Click, click, click. Mama has the opening shift, so she's gone by the time Zola and I drag ourselves downstairs in the morning. But she always leaves the coffee pot on and a pair of multivitamins laid out on a napkin. She used to leave us orange juice and cereal boxes and whatever, but nobody's got time for that, oh my god. I suck down my coffee and crunch the vitamin, and it's shaped like an elephant and tastes like something a chicken might eat. Zola lets hers sit on her tongue. Yuck, I tell her. But she just brushes past me to get her shoulder bag. At this rate, we'll be late for the bus. This change didn't happen all at once. It was long and slow, and I didn't even notice until one day I woke up and knew. We're twins, but we're no longer identical. I can tell her stories now because she wasn't there to be a part of them. She doesn't meet her own eyes in the mirror when she brushes her teeth. 
Zola and I used to do everything together, but we don't anymore. She's part of a club that writes letters for social justice, and I go out on Tuesday afternoons to get frozen yogurt with this group of other girls. I normally don't get much, but then here I am at the checkout with this huge cup of yogurt and tapioca balls and strawberries and Oreo cookies. It doesn't even go together, and I can't imagine putting any of it into my mouth. What's going on with your sister? Anna asks me when we're settled at a table. She's the prettiest of the group with long curly hair that she likes to twine around her fingers. She knows she's the prettiest, but she's not one of those girls who are mean about it. I don't know. I lick my spoon clean. She's always been the weird one. We laugh because when we were younger, Zola and I were alike enough that people couldn't tell us apart. Two frames, but the same girl. Like how our mom had a blue Chevy and the neighbor had a silver Chevy. But no matter the color, there's still the same junky car. She's gotten really thin. Eh, I've just been slacking at the gym, I say. And I try a careless smile. It works, maybe. At least they don't say anything else about it. We talk about boys, and we talk about our chemistry exam. We talk about how Anna's mom got a new job, and now she flies down to South America all the time, and do we think she's got, like, a hot Brazilian boyfriend? She could have had a whole other life down there, and you'd never even know, one of the girls says. I saw something like that on some crime show. Somehow, all my yogurt is gone. Every last cookie crumb of it. I chew on the end of my spoon and think about the look in Zola's eyes turned inward look. Like there's nothing in our world that interests her anymore. Nothing about me. I try it. Close my eyes and try to see the hot dark places inside myself. Until my teeth hurt from clenching them. But there's only light, dull and red through the skin of my eyelids. A hard pulse I can feel under my jaw and the sharp voices of my friends around me. They're talking about going to a movie. There's a third-floor girl's bathroom in the sketchy corner by the art rooms that's dark and smelly and no one goes there unless they want to be left alone. So when I see Zola duck inside during a passing period, naturally, I follow her. She's sitting on the floor under the sinks, her head bowed to her knees. I drop my bag and crawl over to sit next to her. The floor is cold and there's dirt in the corners where the custodian's mop doesn't reach. She turns to me, her face full of a strange kind of light. Look, she says, and shows me the little finger of her left hand. I jolt back, my stomach clenched. Her fingernails missing. The rest of her nails are painted aubergine. But the littlest one is just gone. Only the nail's bed isn't bleeding. It's not even red. It's shiny and dark, and if I look at it just right, I can see something that I'm pretty sure is a whirl of her fingerprint. It's glass, almost all the way through. What the hell is that? I say, though of course I already know. It's all right, she says. I'm meant to be this way. You're not. I want to say, we are the same. We are sisters. We can't be meant to be so different. She digs in her coat pocket and pulls out a sandwich bag of Raisin Bran. She takes a single flake and gives me a single flake, and we put them on our tongues like communion wafers and wait for them to dissolve. I'm just sitting there under the sinks with a piece of stale cereal fuzzing up my mouth, but I can tell that for Zola, it's more. I don't worry anymore, she says, about what anyone thinks. 
Everything that matters to me is already here. She pats her baggy sweater and shrunken stomach. I say nothing. The raisin bran is like limp cardboard in my mouth. So many things weren't important, she says. So I got rid of them. There is a kind of calm surety to her now, like she's more Zola than she's ever been. Boiled down to the marrow of her bones, it makes me think about density, a star shrinking under the pressure of itself until it can't bear the weight anymore. What about me? I say. Zola only touches my hand, her finger pads sliding loose over the bright glass of her insides. Zola doesn't want her mother to know, so I don't tell her. I want to. I want to do something. Slip her pamphlets about anxiety and self-image. Siphon protein drinks down her throat as she sleeps. But I worry she would hate me for it. You could do it too, you know. She says to me as we eat, while I'm eating a salad and she's letting a leaf rest in her mouth. I don't want to be you, I say. She nods, but I don't think she hears me. Sound travels almost 38 times faster through glass than it does in the air. I know, I looked it up. So Zola says things, and I say things, but how could we ever understand one another? Understand this. Her face is quiet. Her face smiles. But it's just a painted-on thing. For the people who are always looking, because people always look. And she's good at it, right? We're beautiful girls, the both of us. They say so all the time. I wish she would talk to me, but she won't. Not in a way that matters. So instead I just have to listen for those things she doesn't say, but means all the same. Because I think Zola is howling, and maybe she's been howling for a long time. But all I can hear is a faint, musical note, like a fork struck on a wine glass for a toast. Our third and final story for this episode is Portrait of My Wife as a Boat by Samantha Murray. This story was first published in Flash Fiction Online. Samantha Murray is a writer, actor, and mathematician and mother, not necessarily in that order. Her fiction has been seen in Lightspeed's Women Destroy Science Fiction, Escape Pod, and Writers of the Future Volume 31, among others, and is forthcoming in Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Samantha lives in Western Australia in a household of unruly boys. This story is narrated by another familiar voice, Podcastle co-editor Graham Dunlop. Enjoy! Portrait of My Wife as a Boat by Samantha Murray She comes home later and later, even though the nights are starting earlier than they were. I feel cross and wronged, and pretend not to see her as she hesitates briefly on the doorstep. I bow my head to my stitching, a new quilt this one with gold, russet and red, colours for the fall that's coming. I do not look at her directly, but I notice that her hair is stiff with salt and spray. She is barefoot and leaves little curved dark marks on the floorboards as she crosses. I cave and tell her, there's rice on the stove. I'm not hungry, she says and her voice creaks like old, old wood. I am tired. I am going to bed. She rests her hand for a moment on my shoulder, but lightly, so lightly. 
That night she tosses and writhes like she's caught on the tides. The bedsheets are twisted asunder, and I wake and sit up in bed. I touch her arm and whisper soothingly, but she will not be soothed. She smells of linseed, of citrus, the oil that she rubs into all of the little tiny cracks in her face. When she leaves, she kisses me and I taste the sea. Then come two days and two wild gusty nights she's gone. Most of my stitching I have to unpick again and again. When she comes in I swell up to her. Where have you been? I cry. And my voice rises high and wails at her like a spiteful wind. Where have you been? She opens her mouth but she does not seem to have any words left. She holds her palms out towards me and stands there squelching. She looks both harder and smoother and deeper brown. I can see that she has come back just for me. I can see, too, that four walls are four too many, and that the hooked rug and the narrow bed, heaped with pillows, just make her obscurely miserable. She has come back for me, and I am not the sea. The next time she leaves, I sit with my stitching and stare at it. Then I put it down. I follow her across the old reserve where you can smell the big old peppermint trees down over the dune and across the sand. The sun has baked the sand hot and I feel the heat under my feet, but I do not hasten my steps. Some things are meant to hurt. She stands at the shoreline and I see she's already curving. Curving, stretching, turning, curving, till she lies half in the water rocking. She is the shape of two open cupped hands pressed together, the shape of a coracle in Welsh, Crewurgl, the light little boats from the place I was born. She has a mast though as they did not, standing proud against the sky. Her hull is heartwood with swirling shades of grey, like ilmenite in wet sand. She is a thing of beauty, but that doesn't surprise me at all, because I knew that already. I knew that always. I lift my leg over the side of her. There is room just for one. She rocks back and forth, and her sail unfurls and billows out. I think she is pleased. Her rocking motion edges us forward off the sandbank and into the deeper water. Light and delicate, she whips along toward the white-tipped waves. I do not speak to her again, but I run my fingers over the sun-warmed wood of her gunwale. What are words but an anchor that drags behind her, slowing her down, making her stop, binding her to the land? You don't say I love you to a boat. You don't. You don't. The wind has picked up and is blowing my hair back from my face. She will take me to shore, now I know. I will stand on the sand and watch her as she heads out towards the sun that's drowning itself at the horizon. I will go back to my hearth and sit and wait, although I know she will not come. I will start a new quilt, one for winter this time, one with pelagic hues, cerulean and cyan, with flecks at the edges white as the tips of the waves.
and welcome back. We've heard three stories, all with a very similar premise. Physical transformation. In each, a woman changes into something. A thing. The transformations are difficult. Change always is. But thematically, these stories are very different. In Girl in Blue Dress, her transformation traps her. She's the subject of the piece, but she becomes an object. A thing that any passerby can project onto. Her transformation into paint and canvas takes from her her name and her agency, but I love that in the end, she still finds a way to be defiant. In Portrait of My Wife is a Bow, it's very much the opposite, though it's clearly difficult for the wife to leave her partner. And it's worth noting here that the gender of the prospective character is actually left up to interpretation. In the end, her transformation into a bow is what she wants. Instead of trapping her, it sets her free. In Mirabilis, it's somewhat more murky. The transformation seems to be what Zola wants, but it's not in her best interest, and her sister is faced with a choice. Does she sit by, do nothing, and watch Zola's transformation? Or does she go against Zola's wishes and get her help? What did you think of today's stories? Stop on by the forums at forums.escapeartists.net and let us know. Speaking of the forums, we turn now to our assistant editor, Khalida Muhammad Ali, for some feedback on previous episodes. Salam, good people. This is Khalida Muhammad Ali, assistant editor over here at PodCastle. Hope you've all been well. Feedback this week is for PodCastle episode number 414, The Men from Narrow Houses, by A.C. Wise. I'm blinking, said this. I found a lot of the imagery here really striking, especially the description of the magic tricks, the deck of cards becoming ranks of thin men who were really one man spread out, her transformation into a fox, that sort of thing. But overall, I found I couldn't really follow this one. I'm not opposed to dreamlike feel, but for me, this went too far in that direction. It felt like actual dreams I have filled with striking images, but in the end, more of a freaky, interesting sideshow than a narrative. Benrix had this to say, This was definitely a prose poem, particularly considering the chorus theme repeated throughout. The men in the story seem to be given form from subconscious nightmare, such as Slenderman for the kids these days, or something like The Gentleman from the Hush episode of Butterfly. And after someone else pointed it out, I can see their many visions were birthed from the tarot cards. Devoted135 said, I had a hard time with this one as well. The imagery describing things kept changing because things and people took different forms in different portions of the narrative. I think that to really appreciate this one, I would need to read it so that I could really make all the connections. By the very end, I could fuzzily see that this story would reward that effort, but I haven't been able to go back to it yet. Not a Robot said, Hmm. Many negative comments on this one. I'm not so sure they're deserved. Yes, there were parts when the descriptions got a sliver too repetitive, the eyes and the smiles, and I would have liked a little more focus at the end. 
but the prose were fun in many parts, and that's one of the reasons I read. On that note, I have to agree with Not a Robot. For me, writing in its many forms is a huge part of the reason I read. And when my time is scarce, which it often is, I will listen to audiobooks and podcasts. Hey, a woman has got to get her fiction fix any way she can. Not a robot, I could not agree with you more. Thank you, Unblinking, Fenrix, Devoted135, Not a Robot, and everyone else who stopped by to comment. Keep coming back to let us know what you think of our stories. I, for one, love hearing your varied, intelligent, and thoughtful comments about the stories we produce. For those of you who didn't leave a comment this time, I sure hope you'll jump into the fray on the next go-round by visiting the Escape Artists Forum at forum.escapeartists.net. We would love to hear your thoughts. Well, that's it for now, but we'll be back next week. Hope to see you there. Peace. Thanks, Kalita. And now it's time to go, but not to worry. We'll be back next week, as always. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, our forum moderators, Talia and Asikat, our audio producer, Peter Wood, our associate editors, Arun Jiwa, Setsu Uzume, Christiana Vermeller, Troy Wiggins, Aiden Doyle, and Crystal Claxton, our assistant editor, Kalita Muhammad Ali, and your co-editors, Graham Dunlop and myself, thank you for stopping by and sharing this story with us. We'll be back next week with another... Until then, this is your host, Jen Albert, reminding you to brace yourself, because transformations are never easy. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. To find out more about them, check their website at www.shiva-in-exile.de. We rely on you to keep our air castle in flight. You can make a regular donation for as little as $2 a month or make a one-off donation of any amount. You can set up donations at the PodCastle website, go to podcastle.org, and find the Support Us section on the right-hand side of the page. If you can't donate, that's not a problem. You can also help us by telling others about PodCastle. Blog about us, tweet about us, review us on iTunes, comment on the forums, anything you can think of to spread the word. Today's quote comes from Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell by Susanna Clark. I dare say I shall have to take on different forms. Cockatrice, raw head and bloody bones, reins of fire, etc., etc. You may wish to stand back a little.